first question anytime we do this podcast is, do you have coffee? Yes. Good. Is right it black? Here. Black. <laughs> All right. Which brings us to our first question of the interview. Okay. Who makes the best cup of coffee? I don't, you know, I've been thinking lately, you know, I mean, I've generally been doing Starbucks, but I had some Dunkin' Donuts yesterday and I was like, you know, this is really good. <laughs> Hi, and welcome to the Gallery Guide, Sordoni Artcast, the official arts podcast of Sordoni Gallery at Wilkes University. Today, Gallery Guide is bringing you an interview with Ray Klimek. So, Ray, um, we want to hear a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I mean, just generally, I was born in, in, in Wyoming Valley in Exeter um, in 1955 and, um, you know, did went to a, a parochial school, then went to high school in the uh, Wyoming Ooh. area. What parochial school? Uh, it's called St. John the Baptist. I don't Saint think John it exists anymore. It's in, okay. it's in Pennsylvania. Um, <laughs> so there are a lot of stories from there, most of which you probably don't want to hear, or maybe you do. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, and I went to college at Wilkes. And um, let's see, just the, the brief breakdown without any of the sordid details is... Uh, I later, I, uh, I later went to Rutgers to study English and did that for several years and then changed my mind and uh, went to the International Center of Photography for a certificate program and then got an MFA. So in there, like the major shift was, was moving away from more traditional academic pursuits to do art, which is what I always really wanted do and finally gave myself permission to you know we see that a lot with the arts and it's funny because I don't think I have ever really seen the reverse um you know I've never seen anyone who was like yeah I got started in you know in the arts in um you know photography or painting and then I just got really really into neuroscience yeah right (laughs) (laughs) it's wild because I feel like in the arts um coming to it after doing something else is such a unique perspective. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's partly, I mean, for me, what it was, was um, I wanted to get away from a kind of academic and scholarly way of thinking about things. And it wasn't so much that, um, you know, I, I, I didn't appreciate that, that, that way of life or that, but, I, you know, I also realized that there was something that felt like it was missing for me. Right. You know, so it was even things like I was never really interested in going to conferences and things like that. Um, but after I, I, I became an artist, I was, I was totally comfortable with doing that. You know, so, you know, I would go to um, College Art Association conferences and Society for Photographic Education. And that became, that was something fun. It was something to look forward to, which I never felt that way about um, you know, MLA conferences or things like that. Again, this isn't like a, a, like a hardcore judgment. It's just a question right. of my, my comfort yeah. and what I, what I felt like I was meant to do. And I guess it's that, you know, it's that mysterious thing. Like you feel like, well, what was I meant to do? Which in a way is like a weird mystical question. But at the same time, there's some there are things that satisfy us in, in deeper ways than others. And for me, it was becoming a visual artist, which had always been kind of, I guess, in the back of my mind in some ways, you know, when I was, when I was um, 
working on my dissertation. It was, an, it was a dissertation on William Carlos Williams. Oh, his I concept of localism, who was my, my hero poet. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, but I ended up writing a lot about the visual arts in that, in that context. Um, because Williams was friends with a lot of artists at the time. He knew Marcel Duchamp, but he knew Charles Sheeler. And, you know. Ooh, uh, that had to have been a fun group. Yeah, and Arthur Dove, <laughs> and Alfred Stieglitz, and, you know, and all kinds of people. So that, that became like a real serious part of what I was writing about. And I realized just as I was writing it, was, I don't really want to write about this. I want to do it. And it was around that time that I had a good friend who was a, a mentor of sorts in the English department who said, do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, there's nothing that should hold you back if that's what you really want to do. And, um, you know, so then I, I studied uh, photography just, you know, a couple of years at um, the community college where I'm now teaching <laughs> photography <laughs> and, um, and just fell in love and realized, like, yeah, I think this is it. And then just uh, followed through on it. I love it. Ways. So yeah, yeah. I love that idea of like needing to give yourself permission to do it because yeah. uh, the way you're talking, the way I'm thinking about it, the first question I wrote down, which you already covered, um, is that like connection between the visual arts and the literary arts. Yeah, yeah. And there's that professional connection that you mentioned that these people hang out in the same circles. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. But the transition between them, you yeah. know, is it's kind of a more permeable membrane, I think, than most people realize. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, so it's sort of, you know, I mean, a lot of the, 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 the major influences on me continue to be writers, you know, mm-hmm. a lot and I get inspired a lot by things that I read. But, you know, I mean, it was certainly, um, you know, with Williams who had followed me around for a long time. It was precisely because he was he was the poet of the local but it was a particular right. kind of local. It wasn't just, um, um, you know, kind of amateurish or, or, or um, it, was, it wasn't just aimed at a very regional audience. You know, I mean, he had an international ambition and international scope mm-hmm. and that appealed to me as well. So sort of like the local is where it starts and it has to start there is what he said, you know, sort of like what else you got, you know, it's just that we don't recognize it. Uh, right. And it was also the notion that, you know, it could start anywhere. It doesn't have to be in London or Paris. You can start here and, and move on. Um, so that was, that was a big influence that way. And, yeah, um, and originally, I mean, I wanted to be a poet, you know, and I've mm-hmm. written poetry. And I was, I was actually the, um, the editor of the Manuscript Society. Oh, that's so that. fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I mean, that, that was my ambition. But then there, you know, I realized at some point that that wasn't quite working precisely because every now and then I'd get inspired to write a poem. But, you know, I mean, I realized like real poets don't wait around to be inspired. You know, you work and out of the work, the inspiration grows. And I just had a hard time, you know, dealing with that blank page, which, you, you know, you're a writer, you understand <laughs> Yes, I um, much prefer being an editor um, yeah, right, <laughs> to that right. to that end. Yeah, right. Well, it's even even with writing. I mean, it's a funny thing. It's like it's easier to rewrite than it is to write, you know, or to revise, you know, because you have something that you can you can work on. There's something concrete there. Yes. Um, and um, I don't know. I mean, it was just sort of like the realization, like okay, you know, I've got a handful of poems that I like. But, you know, beyond that, not much. And, you know, and there, there are friends I had who were real writers, who were poets like Judson Evans. Um, 
who was you know, constantly thinking in those terms and you know mm-hmm. um, and it was sort of like yeah okay this is different it's like I'm thinking in a different way and it took me a while to figure out that okay what I'm doing is more suited to something that's visual and I could never quite get the right combination of images and sounds that I wanted or more more likely more I couldn't get the, the right air of um, ambiguity in poems that I'd, I'd like you know I ended up I'd end up sort of being more direct or more um, not direct I mean that's a that's a silly word but more um, more obvious than I would have liked so right like yeah skirt that you know um the, the thesis drive, I guess, I don't know if I'm making sense now, but no, know, absolutely. You know, when, I was, when I was teaching English, you know, I got so used to just drumming, like, you need a thesis, you need a thesis, you need a thesis. Mm-hmm. And really, you know, it's, it's sort of like in, in art or in poetry, I felt like I don't need a thesis, I need a direction you know, from which I can, I can diverge and do all kinds of stuff. But the thesis was kind of deadening, you know. It's yeah. You know, yeah, I'm starting out knowing what I want to say, and then I just have to say it. And it's the discovery that's the interesting thing, I think, either in, in, in poetry or, or, you know, writing of any kind in art. Mm-hmm. So there's that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you ready for the next question? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, I have some more biographical stuff to start with. Now, Mm -hmm. I've found that every artist that we have had in here and talked to has had some sort of childhood obsession that threads through to the present. For me, it was Lisa Frank, which is why my hair looks like this. Um, For those of you... You mentioned that. Lisa Frank? Yeah, I don't know. I'm sorry. Oh, hold up. Let's see. Let me get a screen share going. So Lisa Frank was like the designer for um little girls in the 90s okay well see, I'm, <laughs> I'm an old man i mean there's whole stretches of time that here you go so this is the look okay of lisa oh, frank yeah okay i can see that Jeez. yeah right <laughs> holy wow <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> so as you can see that hasn't left me um so do you have any of those, you know, childhood obsessions that have stuck around like that? Adolescent um, um, kind of obsessions or adolescent heroes. That I yeah. Had. Yeah, well, those would be Allen Ginsberg, <laughs> who, was, who was, you know, when I remember reading Howl and Cottage when I was maybe 13 years old and saying, I've never seen anything like that <laughs> before. You know, just being like wild about it. And this was, yeah. this was in the 60s. So, you know, it was, it was the height of hippiedom and right. countercultural thinking. And, uh, you know, that was that was a major, a major, uh, it had a major impact on me when I was younger. Um, the other thing was, um, the other person was uh, Bob Dylan. Mm. who I continue to revere um, <laughs> as a, a poet, a musician, um, just as an inspiration. And I think with Dylan, I've actually taught Dylan in, uh, in art school. In, oh, I was wow. teaching a practicum course. Yeah. So most of what we were talking about is like, how do you show your work? Where do you send it out? What's mm-hmm. the protocol? What, what's the etiquette, et cetera, et cetera. And at some point I just said, you know, we're not talking about art and 
what's like what's really important to you. So I showed them. I think it's called No Direction Home, which was the Martin Scorsese movie about Dylan. Okay, and it was yeah. about when Dylan went electric, and this was like a huge scandal. So you <laughs> have to talk about well, you know, the first thing you have to do is be true to your vision. You know, <laughs> like yeah. we might want to think about this as something other than a business. You know, and and that may mean losing people, mm-hmm. but you you have to do it anyway. <laughs> and it was great. It was, like, it was the greatest, best class I ever taught. I saw people writing to me, students saying, oh, I just saw Dylan in concert. Oh. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that was somebody who had a, a huge influence. Um, uh, and with other stuff, it's, it's hard to say. Um, um, I'm trying to think if there were any television shows or anything, but you know, not not especially nothing that stayed, you know. But those two okay. those two figures stayed. They were they it's, were really important. And then there was like the Jefferson Airplane and the Rolling Stones and um, and people like that as well. <laughs> you were unsure of this question, but that all felt very on brand for you. <laughs> like I could still see those coming through today. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad. So um, you mentioned you grew up in this area. So uh, obviously, what does this area mean to you? What does the NEPA region mean to you? And how does it compare with the inspiration you're getting at your current home base? The area means a lot to me. I mean, I found out even when I moved to New Jersey that I would talk about it a lot. Mm. This was even before I started becoming interested in, in, in art visually. Um, you know, when I was in grad school, I'd, I'd organized these, you know, excursions for, to parties at Wilkesbury because I still had a lot of friends, you know, um, you know, who's still very dear to me and still are. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, it's just sort of like what it means to me. It's sort of, I mean, it means a combination of things, both both light and dark, you know. Um, you know, I mean, growing up, I mentioned growing up in a parochial school mm-hmm. and, um that was a rough experience, you know, that I remember being really, uh, you know, I, I lost, I lost my faith around that time. <laughs> um, and, but it was also like, I mean, the weirdness of that, which was, was uh, like part of, of something I think, which was like growing up in a working class environment. Both mm. my parents had worked, my mother worked in a dress factory, my father worked in a, um, an iron foundry when I was growing up and I still have that kind of, I have a politics that's largely defined by that, um, which is, which is essentially left and socialist and, you know, small S socialist. Um, uh, And I think that, that, that shows up in my work in some ways. I mean, that Mm -hmm. kind of interest and it's, but it's, it's also like wanting to go beyond that as well. You know, not wanting to just stay with the political implications, which are certainly there, and not just wanting to be defined by that. Um, I mean, class is a weird thing because it's not really an identity; it's a position, right? You know, and it's not something that you can hang on to in the same way that you might with an ethnic identity mm-hmm. or a sexual identity or something like that. It just, you know, it's something. It, it's got a certain degree of of, um, of flexibility. Although not as much as we, we, we like to think it does in this country. But, right. but at the same time, it's, it's you know, I mean, I can't claim that I'm, I'm still working class, although I can mm-hmm. claim that that's something that informs the way I think. You know? um, 
you know, so it, it, it's kind of important that way. So when I come back to the Valley, I mean, I just, I see that, you know, I mean, I see the remnants of the industry. I see the, um, you know, I mean, what, what happens in an area where a, an industry just kind of disappears overnight. And right. Uh, so, I mean, I'm, I'm sensitive to all of that. And, you know, I'm also sensitive to a kind of potential that's there that I don't think people pay attention to. And, you know, I mean, I try to get, get at that in my work to some degree, yeah. it's sort of like what's left behind. It's like, how do you honor that, that legacy and at the same time move forward from it? My friend Paul Cabot's in Wales is, is um, he's sort of a kindred spirit in that way. Yeah. He's really influenced or, uh, you know, grew up in the same kind of family in the same kind of area. Um, and he's always interested in moving like the image of Wales forward in some ways. So, I mean, he'll go back to the past, but, you know, he'll do things like, um, um, television maps or stuff like that to show that Wales isn't just coal mines anymore but at the same time right. he's not afraid of the coal mines you know it's not yeah so I guess I sort of I don't know if that answers the question I'm probably rolling too much. you you answered most of it I think okay. the only part that's left is what inspires you about your current home base oh okay um I, I don't know. Oh. <laughs> now, I suppose it's, uh, you know, I mean, William Parlos Williams, again, was the great poet of New Jersey. You know, <laughs> one of the things that when I first came here, I was very excited about and visited Williams's home in Rutherford and went to Patterson to see the yeah. falls, where, which he'd written about. Um, and it's, but it's also the proximity to New York. I mean, New Jersey is a weird place. It's sort of like, somebody described it once as a, a barrel tap to both ends. You know, <laughs> New York and, and Philadelphia. And I'm, I, I do get fascinated by the area. I haven't done, strangely enough, I mean, a, a major project that's just about mm. New Jersey, although I'm thinking about something right now. Ooh. Uh, yeah, so it's trying to tantalize a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's sort of, I mean, that, 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 that weird sense of being in between things, but it's also created something in New Jersey. Like there's a, um, a magazine called weird New Jersey. I think like it's now a franchise that you, know, you can find weird Pennsylvania, weird Ohio and stuff. Yeah. Like but, um, you know, it's just like a zine, but it's, um, you know, it started in New Jersey, and I think it started in New Jersey because it was the, the least likely place to have a sense of place, you know? I mean, it's, like, very, yeah. because it's defined as, like, a barrel tap to both, at, at both ends, or, you know, the jokes about New, New Jersey, or, like, where do you live, and, like, you know, what exit, <laughs> stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, like, weird New Jersey is interesting because it, it, it you know, it just around a lot with like local legends and stuff mm. like that but they're there you know there is a sense of place there is a sense that, that things have happened here and um so there's that and then you know i mean new york is something that that inspires me in certain ways i mean mostly i haven't been able to do projects about new york because i, I love it too much you know? <laughs> of it and so many photographers have done it i just keep thinking like well what do i have to add but um 
lately I've just been Pish posh. <laughs> I want to pause you right there because there are people from this area who have not probably not left Northeast Pennsylvania or oh, the Wyoming Valley in decades and they're going to come in here and see this exhibition and see this area in a brand new light Good. so Good. don't don't discount yourself because <laughs> i think the way y- i want to see the way you see new york okay well, and i think a lot of people would i'll see what i can do um, <laughs> um well i mean lately actually i've been doing something just mm-hmm. casually um but it's it seems like all the casual pieces are coming together in an interesting way. So I'm thinking I might put it together in a book or maybe another show or maybe both, you know, so, so at some point, it's still, it's sort of, it's just sort of starting to boil. It's simmering right now. So Good. I'll let you know when it comes to a full boil. <laughs> so um, before we wrap up your biographical um, section, mm-hmm. do you want to tell us about some of your favorite artist inspirations or maybe some favorite pieces? Yeah. Um, there are a couple of people, um, I mean, I think I've mentioned them, like, obviously, Franz Klein, who was from the area, and I mean, the inspiration there, I don't even know, I mean, to some degree, it's it's the work itself, just because Klein gave me a good sense of what, what could constitute a good composition, yeah. you know, in ways that I might not have thought before, mm-hmm. um, but, uh, you know, also uh, several different people, I'm, I'm a big admirer of... Uh, of Ronnie Horn's work in Iceland, um, of uh, Tassin Dean, and um, somebody who I really, whose work I love and I'm really crazy about is a man named James Benning. Um, and I've actually, I've written uh, an essay about James Benning that was published in American Quarterly. Um, and James Benning is a filmmaker, and the first time I ever saw any of his films was at Anthology Film Archives in New York, and it was for a a series of films called California Trilogy, Mm. which consisted of static shots of various places in different areas of California. So one was in the city, one was like in the city. Los Angeles. One was outside in the suburbs. Another one was like out in the wilderness. And each film consisted of, of I don't know how many shots this would take, but well, it was, it was essentially two and a half minute static shots, which means that you know the, the camera was rolling, but he just focused on one one thing, like right. space, and just let the, the camera run through. Oh. Um, and that's it. I mean, it's just one shot after another. And I've been, you know, I was interested in landscape and I thought, well, this is interesting. I thought, God, I don't know if I can handle all of these. I mean, they're like, each is an hour and a half long. <laughs> I'm thinking like, well, you know, I'll, I'll see what it's like. So, you know, I don't know, something like six hours later, I emerged <laughs> <laughs> totally hooked on, on this artist. Um, and they were just absolutely fascinating. And I think it made a difference because it was it was so much it so much involved like the quality of attention, right? That, uh, and that I was surprised that I had, you know. I mean, it sort of invited me into a way of seeing, and I was just blown away by it. And I've tried to see everything I can by him since then. I've written about him. He's got a great one called uh, Ten Skies, which is literally ten skies, ten minutes per sky. So it's like, you know, a hundred minutes or whatever. Um, and I first saw this at the 
was it was the Tribeca Film Festival, I guess. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing it. And he was there and talking about it. But it came up to the tenth sky and and somebody was leaving. <laughs> like and I said, you know, I, I remember thinking like, like, do you want to see how it ends? You know? <laughs> like, um, but at any rate, um, yeah, so Benning's been really important to me that way. And he's done, done a number of interesting things. Uh, you know, and, and, and to somebody coming from the outside, it seemed unlikely, you know, but yeah. but people get really hooked on it. You know, and I've, I've talked to other people who just like, you know, have expressed this kind of awe at what he's done. And he came to uh, Ohio University when I was teaching mm-hmm. there and, um, you know, gave a lecture and did a screening. And it was, it was really magnificent getting to meet him and talk to him. And he's, he's had a huge influence on my film. Yeah, cool. so that, that, that's, that's the guy I'd like to, you know, give a shout out to. <laughs> Absolutely. And we may have to feature that on our, um, some of his work on our social media as a oh, sure. entertainment recommendation. Sure. Absolutely recommended by Ray, the artist yeah, in the show. That's perfect. This is what we need. Good. Absolutely. <laughs> we'll be back with more Gallery Guide. Ready for an in-person event at the Sordoni Art Gallery? Then join us for an Art in Context film screening with Ray Klimek on June 8th at 12 p.m. Remote Viewing is a 32-minute video work about the action of exploration that Klimek filmed in Montventoux, France. This video collaboration with poet Judson Evans will make its Pennsylvania debut here at the Sordoni Gallery. Previously, the work was accepted into the Athens International Film and Video Festival in Athens, Ohio. Klimek will provide a talk back after the film and answer questions. And we're back with more Gallery Guide. So next up, I have a couple questions about your artistic practice, um, because we have, you know, the people that listen to this podcast are very much all across the board. We Mm. have people like Heather who are artists in their own rights, who are professionals, who know what they're doing and know what they're talking about. And then we have people like me who just think it's really neat and my MFA is in creative writing. And, you know, we don't we don't tell the bosses in charge that that um, I've infiltrated the uh, (laughs) the art world. Um, So I'm going to ask a couple of all over the place, different levels um, and hopefully we'll have something for everybody with this. But okay. the first question and probably the easiest one is what does your artistic practice look like? Do you keep a schedule? Do you have like a playlist you hit play on when you start? Maybe a scented candle? What's it look like? Well, a couple things. I mean, it sort of depends on where I am in a project. You know, I mean, usually okay. it may just start with reading or thinking or daydreaming or, or something like that. Or playing, I mean, more likely, you know. Um, I mean, I, I always like to tell students, and this isn't like an original <laughs> rayism, but it's, um, you know, essentially the, the, the um, inspiration, or work doesn't come out of inspiration. Inspiration comes out of work. They mm. may say this in creative writing, too. I don't yep. know. But, but, you know, I mean, the basic idea is you've got to try something. You just experiment. If it, if it doesn't seem like a good idea, play with it. Maybe there's something in there that you don't know about yet, but just keep going. You know, you can't just wait around to be struck by inspiration or it's not going to come. Yeah. And which is another way of saying inspiration comes from handling materials, whether it's words or marble or paint or light and, and chemistry, you know, anything yeah. But but then there there are certain times when it becomes more focused. Okay, mm-hmm. once I get onto something, and then you know, I mean, I can work from like five to eight hours. I mean, it's interesting for photographers too because the work part has two 
two parts basically. I mean, one is shooting, you know, uh, except for like really abstract pieces, but the other is post process, whether it's in a dark room or either. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like the shooting part a lot, you know, because it gets me outside and it's it's the kind of thing that's that's most inspiring but then there's you know there's the the other part which is also great which is just like honing it and shape so it's perceiving something and then you know going through a process of shaping it as far as preparation the weirdest thing is that i i found that um i like to get started when i'm when i'm working by listening to free jazz (laughs) like free improvisations which sounds kind of like strange because you know with kids they always say oh mozart you know and it's it increases your brain power and improves your con- concentration. Right. But, you know, I mean, I found myself listening to like Ornette Coleman and, and, and Evan Parker and there's <laughs> various people. Derek Bailey is a guitarist who I really like. Oh. But at any rate, it's sort of like, I mean, listening to something that can seem utterly chaotic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it is. <laughs> you know, because I mean, the way it's structured is basically agreeing on, on some, you know, basic parameters and then, and then doing your thing within those parameters. But um, I, I usually find that I can focus in like, what's, what's happening here? What's developing now? So mm-hmm. People start like tuning into each other, you know? So if it's a group improvisation, somebody might hear something that he likes that somebody's playing respond to it and stuff so there's little things that start emerging from that chaos and and that's something that you know i, I can listen to them and go okay i'm ready <laughs> like, i'm ready i'm focused so i don't know that's probably a sign of insanity or something um but, but... i think that's an incredibly <laughs> elegant metaphor but go off <laughs> so um what initially drew you to the mining landscapes well i just because it was both familiar and strange mm. the way I, could play. I mean it's a perfect example of, of the uncanny. Yeah. You know, meaning like the strangely familiar or, um, and, uh, you know, because I was very familiar with it. I mean, you know, so like I, I, I've written about this, but I've played on these landscapes and heard all the history of the landscapes. And then after moving to New Jersey, coming back, and it just really weird, you know, it's a sort of like the deep strangeness of the hit sort of like I grew up with this but this is very very strange so it's that combination which is almost perfect for photographer where you feel some kind of familiarity but at the same time it's it's popping up things keep popping up that seem a little unusual um and I think you know I mean in art in general there's there's the the kind of practice that I like which is I I also talk to my students about this was the idea of defamiliarization Yes. It's an object that's around, you know, the salt shaker, a dog, a cat, you know, whatever, <laughs> and yeah. making it making it unfamiliar in some ways, which is a way of kind of refreshing the world. At any rate, that's always stuck with me is, is you know, something that I really want to do with art and something that mm-hmm. I want to make with art. You know, confronting the calm banks, it's, it's I mean, at least it was it was familiar with me, but there was a way of making it strange by looking at it. Trying yeah. to look at it in a fresh way, you know, not and not just as a series of cliches, you know, and you know, especially like all oh, the poor people have to grow up with this in their backyard, <laughs> blah blah blah. You know, it's sort of like, well, that wasn't it, you know. Well, yeah, I don't think you get it. Yeah. Those things are real friggin' fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> oh God, yeah. So, um, related, why elemental carbon? Why go with an element? Well, I mean, it just sort of grew out of. Whole, yeah. Know, okay. Of, like, that seemed like the obvious 
the obvious um, aspect. Um, uh, and I guess, I don't know, I mean, there's something about that too that I, that's interested me and I don't know why and I don't know how to explain it, but the idea of the elemental, you know, um, I mean, earlier ideas of that, mm-hmm. you know, like earth, air, fire, water, you know, and then there's a periodic table where you start to get a little more sophisticated about it. But just yeah. the idea that there are these, like, these basic building blocks and, and seem to me to be really fascinating and magical in a way, as well as scientific. Um, right. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm just looking at coal and thinking, like, God, coal is this weird thing, you know? And, you know, it, it's a rock that catches fire. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Sort of, and, and carbon is just sort of, you know, and, and it, it, it's all or, originally biology, you know, so mm-hmm. it's this transformative thing that happens with it. Um, you know, so it's, um, you know, there, there is that part. Um, I'm thinking about it in terms of, of uh, I don't know, like geology or geography. You know, right. Like, no, I mean, at one point, there's a sort of this huge belt um of coal uh, around the equator, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I mean, which, which, well, it's actually a belt of, of vegetation that yeah. rots and that, that carbonizes, that, that, that becomes a, uh, a mineral. And it just seemed like very science fiction to me. And again, it's sort of like going yeah. back to God, this is strange, you know, and so much of it has to do with science, you know, which, mm-hmm. which is intriguing, you know, it should be intriguing for artists, which like amazing things there that happen under those circumstances. And I think that um, I wanted to go to that. So it's a way of taking pictures, not only of places, but of, of suggesting things about time, about yeah. about kind of universal in a very literal sense, um, mm-hmm. forces and, and thinking, okay, and it happens in a local area. You know, so again, it's mm-hmm. that, 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 that William Carlos Williams sense. Who, you know, Williams says like the only locals that are the only, only universalist local. Right. And it's like, yeah, everything just sort of like comes to a point in one particular place. And you want to discover what's that relation to the broader picture, you know, the mm-hmm. picture. And it was also a way to explore, you know, since it's everywhere, like common objects. And I suppose that's part of it as well. I mean, for me, there, there's, you know, if I had to say there are two like extremes or two poles of what I do, one has to do with the everyday and mm-hmm. the other has to do with the sublime and yeah. they fold into each other in interesting ways. And it usually depends on becoming aware of that depends on scale. Right. So that's something else. And, I, and going back to like obsessions from uh, uh, my, my early youth, mm-hmm. um, there's the movie The Incredible Shrinking Man <laughs> that I remember from when I was a kid and in which the hero, after being exposed to radiation, of course, because this is the 50s, right? Of course. Um, uh, just begins shrinking and becomes smaller and smaller and he th- gets attacked by a spider in his basement and fights it off with a hat and then manages to leave his basement because he's become smaller than the mesh and <laughs> <laughs> and, he just, and he keeps shrinking and realizes at some point, like, oh, this is just going to keep happening. Mm. But there, he says there's no zero. 
Mm. <laughs> you know, um, and there's that beautiful kind of sense, and it's basically you know ends with this this wonderful scene of him or becoming one with the universe. You know, in a way that's hokey, but at the same time, I was telling a friend of mine like recently, you know, God, this is like my introduction to big ideas. You know? Right. <laughs> like when I left that, I just thought, wow, you know, this is an incredible <laughs> idea. So I followed up on that. So. I hope that answers your question about carbon specifically. Absolutely. It takes us down to the molecular level, you know. Yeah. So actually, um, really good lead into the next question. You experiment a lot with different um, like printing and photography processes. Um, I know we have in the show everything from using a scanner to the the carbon paper itself. Are there any technologies that you want to get your hands on? I mean, I've been thinking about and just haven't had time to really unwrap it so I need to contact somebody who actually knows how to do it to teach me how but uh, I mean there's like 3D printing yeah this thing to me and I'm thinking of something that's you know that's quasi-sculptural especially with things like the carbon prints you know I'd like to see what would happen with those as kind of reliefs oh to be able to touch those yeah yeah Mm. yeah or you know I mean it's just also the fascination with like relief maps you know Mm-hmm. Um, geological maps that really show, you know, yeah. little in the paper, and so which is a much older technology. I have no idea how that works, but yeah, something like that is what I'd like to uh, play with. And mm-hmm. other than that, I mean, I really want to mess around with film some more, with video some more. So you know, I've made so far two videos that I'm having. Right, it's the one that we'll be showing, um, and another one is called. Um, uh, screen test 2020 which is just people staring at their computer screens uh, being perfectly quiet and perfectly expressionless and, oh that's so cool well it's something that i got the idea from um <laughs> this was a great idea in the shower in the midst of 2020 like what the hell am i gonna do you know it's like i can't go there's all these limitations <laughs> and so i started thinking well you know i could do something with um um with zoom or something like that so I just started asking people, like, you know, just stare at the screen for, yeah. for, for like a minute and send me what you, show me what you have. And the inspiration was Andy Warhol's um, screen tests. Okay. People don't move. They're either staring at their, or just blinking or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really funny to give everybody their minute of saying, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, in the midst of COVID. And it's also, you know, you get the sense of isolation yeah it's kind of a bummer actually but but it's worth seeing (laughs) right no and from the sound of it i think andy warhol would be tickled oh this by this homage i I would hope so so. (laughs) (laughs) stick around for gallery guide on june 26 at 2 p.m we'll host an art in your hands workshop outside the sordoni art gallery Inspired by the dark enchantment of the mining scapes of northeastern Pennsylvania and abroad, Ray Klimek highlights the mysterious beauty of the dark typography. Recreate this magic on your desktop at our Art in Your Hands workshop. Join us to create a carbon zen garden. We will learn the basics of wire wrapping to create gardening tools for zenifying your black sand garden with mining-inspired elements. Email carly.stasco at wilkes.edu to reserve your kit. And Gallery Guide is back with Ray Klimek. So um, let's talk about the current exhibition a little bit. What yeah. was the decision process like for picking out what works were going into the show? 
<laughs> like sort of what, what I could find was part of it. Okay. Um, but no, I more seriously, mm-hmm. this is a, I hoped to have a show like this at some point. Like prior to this, I've shown little pieces of everything. So I showed a lot of the piece of the CC series, which were the, the carbon uh, paper mm-hmm. images, or I'd shown other pieces. Um, and it, I always wanted to show everything together and in exactly the way that I'm showing it now. I mean, I don't mean precisely placed that way, but the right. idea was that this is something that isn't a series of just separate projects that they all interlock right. in, a, in a meaningful way. And that they should be seen in a way where you could see one, you could look around across the gallery, see something else, you could bounce back and forth, you could make comparisons as you're going forward. Uh, so, you know, that was something I definitely wanted. And as far as the, you know, anything that was part of the series, I just wanted to put in. So this is like virtually everything. I mean, there are a couple new pieces that I'm still working on. Um, You know, obviously couldn't go in, but um, this was the ideal. So, yeah, you know, and I just had these in storage. Again, I pull things out. And the closest that I ever got to this was a show that I had in Pittsburgh. Now, I remember when you came to um, to hang, there was a moment where the show clicked into place. What was that like? It's hard to say. You know? I mean, it's just weird because, well, there was that one piece, I think, towards the end where it's sort of like, well, and we can, we can switch that with this or we can do this. And, yeah, it just kept escaping. I was thinking, just get rid of the piece. What do we do? And then, I don't know, Heather put something together. It was like, damn, that's it. You know? <laughs> and, and I think it was just, it, it was a question of that one piece fitting in with the pieces beside it and across the way and then everything seemed to make sense you know there were ways to it's almost a way of like how do you get the pieces to talk to each other right you know? and I mean thinking of free jazz it's sort of like the same kind of thing like how do you get all of these like weird instruments that are doing their own thing when do they start talking to each other oh yes exactly yeah so um do you have a favorite that's currently in the show yeah, I have to say it's probably um, CC Primo Levi. Me too. Yeah, I love that yeah, one. Yeah, I mean, it's a close yeah. tie with that and the um, stellar diptych because I like to pretend I'm in Star Trek and yeah, like, stand yeah. in front of it and do the. Yeah, little... <laughs> yeah. Well, the stellar diptych—that was Yo-Yo Ma's favorite. Um, oh. I met Yo-Yo Ma in Pittsburgh because he came to um, the space that I was showing, and it's called Unsmoked uh, Art Space. Um, <laughs> Because he was, you know, just visiting like underrepresented or, or undervalued art spaces, right? In, in conjunction with the Kennedy Center, I think. So he came in with like you know his entourage and a bunch of other people, and the singer Valerie June, who's really wonderful, was there. Um, but Yo-Yo Ma and Valerie June played together, and. Aww. Uh, in the gallery and later I was talking to Yo-Yo Ma who's a very very nice man I mean it was wonderful through the Mm -hmm. whole uh, interview or through his whole uh, presentation he kept doing a shout out and saying (laughs) visual artists like Ray are very important blah blah and I'm you know I'm thinking like oh my god this is so great you know I'm unworthy Um, and afterwards he pointed to the stellar diptych and said, well, you know, so these are stars. And I said, oh, well, no, actually, it's dirt. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he said, ah, I said, that's why you're important. You make a C. Yeah. 
And I was so touched by that, so moved by it. Um, so at any rate, you know, so you're in good company with that one. And that's one that really sort of set everything off too. I and mean, at mm-hmm. some point I'd done that, I wasn't quite sure where that was going. And then it started fitting in with all of the other pieces. Um, and C.C. Primo Levy, um, right, yeah. I mean, that just came from after I'd, I'd done some, some stuff with, uh, with carbon paper, just blank carbon mm-hmm. paper. Uh, and it started thinking about that, beyond that. Um, and I started looking for, for used carbon paper and couldn't find any anywhere. <laughs> get rid of it, you know, it's like, because <laughs> I wanted to get that. So like, what would that look like to just right. have something like, covered with text, but it was unreadable or whatever. And then I realized like, okay, I'm just going to have to do this myself. <laughs> and then the question became, okay, but that means I have to make a choice. You know, like I have to decide on something. Right. Um, I like chance isn't going to be of any use to me here so then I thought oh yeah there's that 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 essay by Primo Levy so I just typed that up and you know did it as a palimpsest you know so it's like one thing on top of another Mm -hmm. and when I saw it again it was one of those things where it's like okay I don't believe how this looks you know (laughs) (laughs) so I was really thrilled about that and there'll probably be a couple more things like that coming along so oh um, that's uh, good a prose poem by francis Ponge called uh anthracite and it's in originally written in french and i have like a bilingual edition so i wrote it out in french and then out in english oh that's <laughs> so cool the other. so you know and then there was the thing that i did with judson um uh, uh Collier's mansion mm-hmm. which was also like a really interesting collaboration and i love how though the um the c series that are typed on like that have almost like a textile look to them yeah yeah yeah. like it it looks like the type of design that you would you know see high fashion walking on the runway between that texture and that shine (laughs) and the abstract lettering like no like i could i could absolutely you know see this you know see it fall runway look very versace kind of vibe (laughs) no one has ever compared my work to versace it's sort of Oh, well, there's a first time for everything. (laughs) Um, Well, what's weird about that is there's almost like the the lettering is almost gold, you know? Right. And I took forever trying to figure that out. What what is this? What's happening? And I think it's it's the light from the the scanner. Oh, okay. So it's really interesting the way the materials interact with the technology. But that was another happy accident. I guess like, I mean, so much of it is being open to accident. Yeah. Which is really what so much of photography is about. You know, to make a distinction between like fashion photography, which is usually very controlled, you know, everybody has an idea. Right. They want the image to, you know, and it's like, come on, work with me, work with me, work, make love to the camera and stuff like that. <laughs> but uh, what I love about photography is, is its openness to chance, you know. Mm-hmm. Something's always lurking that you're not noticing. But, and often that's the most interesting right. way to, 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 to court that, I guess. To, do a little dance with the world, shape it in the way you want it. So what's what's the big takeaway from Carbon? What do you hope that viewers take away from this exhibition once they visit? There's nothing in particular. Again, it's sort of like, I mean, I don't mean that they shouldn't take anything away from it, but no one thing, you know. Um, cool. And it's like, I'm not interested in, in laying out a thesis, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, And as I said, there's an ambiguity to the material itself, which is both, you know, a source of life and and, and a potential source of destruction. And 
can you keep both of those ideas in your head at the same time? Uh, right. And where do you go from there? You know, I mean, I suppose if, you know, again, I, I don't think there's like a, a specific practical, mm-hmm. I, this is going to give anybody. Um, but if it frees up people's minds enough so that they can start thinking about it in different ways, and that's, that's a step towards a solution. So, I mean, I usually think of, that's the practicality of art. Can this free up your head in some way to wrap your, your mind around something in a new way? So now we're moving on to the fun questions. Are okay. you ready? Yes. All right. So this wasn't one I prepped you with, um, but based on your artwork, I have been um, starting a rumor that you helped Stanley Kubrick fake the moon landing. Do you think people will buy it? Oh, yeah, I think yeah. so. I think, I think so. Not to. Yeah. <laughs> because the, the truth is, I did. <laughs> I, was around, I was 14 years old. <laughs> I, I was a boy genius. You, know? you were a boy so, genius. Yeah, right. You were scouting locations. That's right. That's what I did. <laughs> So who are your musical inspirations? I think I mentioned Bob Dylan already. Right. Um, and free jazz. Um, yes. But aside from that, um, uh, I really like John Cage. You know, in a very direct Ooh. way, John Cage is a, a, an influence who, who, you know, again, we were talking about chants and things mm-hmm. like that. Cage is somebody who, who sort of made, brought that home to me. I remember once very distinctly, you know, I mean, seeing something about John Cage and thinking, okay, well, this is an interesting idea and thinking about it in terms of, I know, some kind of conceptual art, I guess. But um, I was in New York once and just sort of felt like my, my, my brain kind of got blown away by all the sounds I was hearing, sights right. I was seeing at once, but it all seemed perfectly clear. It wasn't as though I felt overwhelmed by chaos you mm. know, that I could hear all of these things at once. So there was a quality of attention that was dispersed yet, 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 yet still very active. And, um, and I thought, oh, now I get it. It's not, it's not conceptual at all. It's a real thing. Right. Uh, and Cage's famous piece, which is the silent piece in 40 yeah. seconds, right? Where, you know, someone sits at a piano or an orchestra just stands by their in- instruments and don't play anything. Right. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I heard someone complaining about that. And I said, no, but it's like the greatest piece of music in the world. It's different every it's time. It's different every time. <laughs> and anyone could perform it anywhere. That's right. That's right. That's right. I told my students, one of my students was complaining after I had played, uh, played the, the, the version by the London Symphony Orchestra. <laughs> I said, well, this is stupid. I don't like it at all. And I said, well, maybe we should play the piano version. Maybe you'll like that. <laughs> But it is, it is a marvelous thing with Cage, you know, yeah. precisely that kind of, um, that kind of openness. And, uh, you know, and I mean, basically what he does in a lot of instances is just create a frame through which you can listen to something and really focus on something. And there was a period, it was right before he died, uh, but it was in the Gardner Museum of Modern Art. And every week there was a new Cage presentation and Cage was there. Mm. And it, it was just kind of like that. It's just so remarkable. I mean, he'd play something, but you know, in between gaps between between notes, like there's a cello performance, and you know, you'd hear a siren going off. And, you know, yeah. encouraged to sort of like think about all of that at once, and and all of these things keep coming in from the outside. You know, and I really like that idea. 
I know uh, set the controls as a reference to Oh Pink Floyd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was from the Amadama album, which I bought when I was like 13. <laughs> and it wasn't even like I'm still a huge Pink Floyd fan or anything, but that title always struck with me. <laughs> no, we just become a person at the age of like 13, 14 and stop. Yeah, yeah right. right. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> But it's still a great title, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. So are you binge-watching anything good right now? Oh, Mayor of Easttown. Have you seen any of this? It's no. HBO. It's actually set in Pennsylvania. Okay. Like somewhere probably further west, I suspect, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of interesting. And with um, um, <laughs> I can't remember her name. <laughs> One of the Kates, Kate Winslet. Oh, okay. Is in it. Um, yeah. You know, plays a kind of like working class cop uh, trying to solve a murder. Mm. And it's it's kind of intriguing. Um, my yeah. favorite binge watch of all time was um, Justified. I don't know if you've seen Ooh, it. yes. Uh, Timothy Oliphant and, and, and the great Walton Goggins, <laughs> one of my very favorite actors. Yes. <laughs> And that, that's interesting, too, because it was set in coal country. I suspect that's one of the reasons. I mean, further south in coal country. In, in, right. Uh, but in, still. In Kentucky. But still, yeah, yeah. That sense yeah. of familiarity. Yeah. So, yeah. So watching that and then, you know, Walking Dead, whatever. <laughs> nice. It's yeah. so funny to ask because it's like, again, incredibly on brand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess it is. Oh, so, I hate that word brand. <laughs> it's too late i'm obsessed we've yeah, already created your I brand know, I know, I know. <laughs> so um what's your go-to snack while you're working <laughs> there's a good question um um cheese it's i guess oh <laughs> quality choice yeah yeah and um yeah yeah cheese it's and cheese it's and blueberries they're a nice company Cheeses and what? Ba- blueberries? Blueberries, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. So now's the time for the question that may get us in trouble. But okay. who is the most overrated artist and oh. who should we care about instead? That's easy. <laughs> Jeff Koons. I hate Jeff Koons. <laughs> I just do not like Jeff Koons whatsoever. <laughs> and people try to explain Jeff Koons to me and I don't care. Um, <laughs> I just find him to be like, utterly worthless. <laughs> um, anything that I've seen by him, um, you know, I mean, I, like, okay, I appreciate these, he's playing with materials in funny ways, like making porcelain figurines from pornographic images of his <laughs> wife or uh, giant stainless steel poodles, you know, balloon animals, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> I hate his attitude towards art, um, uh, and it's partly because he's he's um, he's, he's an artist that I've, you know, and it's, I suppose it's in the Warhol tradition that um, uh, doesn't make much of a distinction between the business of art and the actual activity of art, which is really important to me. Okay. You know, and I remember someone who was in art school saying, "Well, art is a business like any other," and I just thought, you know, like no, like art's my religion, and which is not to say that I'm I'm, I'm totally you know separated from from the art world or the world of money or anything like that right. but i think that it really is important like you have to know what you want to do 
you know, and it's sort of like there, there's the economics of art, which is a little different from, from the actual activity. And the purpose right. of making money from art is to make more art, you know, not. <laughs> so who are we caring about instead? Who, who deserve, well, who's underrated? Let me, let me see. Well, you know, the, the, this weekend I managed to see um, uh, a show by um, Lucy Raven. She's, her show is quite remarkable and it was all about concrete. So you could see the, the kind of interest that I might have in that. Yeah. But, uh, the show consisted of, of, well, it's in two parts. I mean, first is just walking into a room with spotlights sort of mm-hmm. circling around and crossing each other and, and moving around the room. And then and it seemed to be calling attention mostly to the concrete floor, the, the ceiling, concrete pillars, things like that. And then walking into the other room for a, a, a film that's maybe about an hour long, mm-hmm. um, which is, it's strange because it's, it's hard to describe, but I'm really interested in this idea and this process because it's, it, in some ways it's a documentary film about processing concrete, but it, it, it plays around with this, this funny borderline between documentation and abstraction. Mm-hmm. So there are these wonderful images of just like, close-ups of concrete being like scraped smooth so that the entire screen is just a shade of gray for a while. Oh yeah. Something up. And also then a bunch of, of other things. So yeah, I mean I think that she's really terrific. Um and there yeah, I mean there's so many people who I love. Um I you know I mentioned before um uh Tessa Dean. It's a British artist who's very much interested in place and process. And, you know, has done a lot of stuff with both photography and film. Uh, and, you know, I mean, they're not, they're not obscure people, but, but they don't have the kind of flash that, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, Jeff Koons has. Um, All right. So um, if a total amateur, such as myself, was inspired yes. to try our hand at art because we saw your exhibition and we were like, oh, holy crap. What would you tell us to try first? Well, that's a tough one, Carly. You know. um, I'd like, say I'm inspired. It's a beautiful day. What should I do? Play with your phone. Go out and play with your phone. See what you see, but see what looks interesting and, and, and take a picture and then go back and take another picture of the same thing. <laughs> and okay. then do that again. <laughs> you know, we keep going back and see the different ways that you can describe, you can see it. Um, and that that's, I think that's an important thing to do. Like how many ways can you do this? How many ways can you see it? And then put two pictures together and see what happens. <laughs> and sometimes nothing will happen, but sometimes something will. That's a fun idea. We may have to have a social media contest of doing just that. Sure. How many perspectives can you get of the same object? Yeah. Hmm, yeah. This could be fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so finally, as we close out, like I said before, our listeners are a mix of professionals, amateur, people who just think art is neat. Is there a final word you want to offer to everybody? Art is important, you know, and it's, it's more important than just um, a simple pastime. You know, and I'm, I'm, the thing is that it should always, for me, it always involves kind of pleasure, mm. but it's a pleasure that goes deeper than most and, and it also involves the mind in a way that most pleasures don't. I hope you enjoyed our interview with photographer Ray Klimek as much as I did. I cannot thank Ray enough for sharing his artistic practice and philosophy with us. 
A huge thank you, of course, to everyone here at the Sordoni Art Gallery, especially the director and my usual co-hostess, Heather Sincavage, as well as the wonderful SAG staff and the support of the Sordoni family. Major thanks also to Wilkes University and, of course, all of our art-loving listeners. Be sure to stop by the Sordoni Art Gallery between now and July 16th to check out Ray Klimek's Carbon.